Welcome to the Women-Owned, Women-Operated Podcast, where we speak with female founders in the trenches of building a business. I'm Ronnie Wise, founder and CEO of Ronnie Wise Consulting. Through this podcast, I hope to share stories, struggles, and successes to inspire you to pursue your passions and support women-owned businesses. Homewood is a predominantly African-American neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the unemployment rate is higher than in the surrounding areas. Despite these odds, Nisha Blackwell, who grew up in this area, was resilient. In 2014, she founded Knotsland, an artisan bow tie company based in Homewood, where she trains women in her community as seamstresses and reduces waste by upcycling discarded materials, all while creating unique and funky fashion statements. Nisha, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy day to meet with me. I know this was your day off, (laughs) or your day to do meetings, you said. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Well, I would love to start from the beginning. So was becoming an entrepreneur always something you wanted to do, or did you start on a completely different path? So I never really set out to become an entrepreneur. I was always exposed to women who had businesses, like a lot of my aunts and my mom had small businesses, like rather it be Avon or selling artwork. But I never really saw myself being a business owner. I was always creative. I don't think I connected the dots on how I can like connect creativity with business until it kind of fell in my lap. And do you feel like when it when it did fall into your lap that it was something where you all of a sudden realized all these women around you were were business owners? I remember kind of looking at different aunts who had small companies and stuff and saying what I would do differently. Oh, interesting. And also, like, from working all throughout my 20s, like, different bosses I've had, like, okay, she's great at this, but she's not so great at this, or he's great at this, but he's not so great at that. And if I were a leader, if I were a business owner, these are the things that I would take, and these are the things that I would make sure that I'm aware of. And so, you know, I've actually experienced a lot of entrepreneurs come from families or people around them that are entrepreneurs. Were there specific experiences that you feel like led you in this direction when sewing? Yeah, a little known story is that, I mean, again, I've always been really creative. I've loved to draw things and draw clothing specifically. Aunt of mine that I have, and I don't really share this story that often because it's like a little, it was a touchy subject at first, but she taught everyone how to sew. When we were growing up, like all my cousins somehow, and I don't think it was like intentional on her part, I just missed the boat on like <laughs> learning how to sew. Wow. And so to be the one family member who has created a career and taught herself how to sew has always been like really like, okay, this is interesting how that happens, you know? You kind of came out of nowhere. And yeah. Maybe that drive to teach yourself was to the reason myself. why you love it. Yeah, 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 yes. Originally, I had a sewing machine in my possession because I wanted to fix things and I wanted to reclaim some of my garments. And I never imagined like having a business. It was more for a personal use. So how did you settle on bow ties specifically? So <laughs> bow ties comes back to, I had a machine in my living room that I had purchased with my income tax one year and kind of let it sit there again I wanted to rework clothes and rework things but I never had the initiative to like go and pick up the machine and turn it on I was super duper nervous super intimidated I thought I would break something so it came a point where a friend of mine's daughter had a birthday coming up and me and her have been friends since preschool this relationship is just really important to me and I knew that I didn't really have the financial means to get her something really nice it was her daughter's first birthday I wanted to do something nice get something nice but I was like okay so what can I do and I looked over at that sewing machine and that was what really pushed me to create a product that's when I decided to like okay I'm gonna teach myself how to sew I pulled up YouTube 
and typed in how to use a brother x whatever <laughs> machine and everything from the bobbin to turning the machine on to every every single thing i learned self-teaching and that was kind of what it took for me to build a business to even have a product right and so i got to the birthday party with these hair bows that i had somehow magically made at 3 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> the parents went crazy when the baby went to go open the gift. So it was kind of one of those things where I was like, I'm gonna get to this party, I'm gonna give her this box. By the time the birthday party is over, they're gonna be like, fell apart and all over the place because I just like tried to make something, you know? <laughs> and it was the reverse. And she had a picture of the baby with, with the um, hair bows on her high chair. And I just I always look at that picture like, wow, that is so crazy how I can just like, stay up really late, make something, and like it's something that people love. I left the the party with six customers at that oh point. Oh my gosh. And I basically kind of supported myself over the summer. I had recently been laid off, so I used this as an opportunity to just like kind of make money and earn money, and it did really, really well. I mean, I tapped into my college network, my high school network, and like they were all starting to have children at the time, and I was like, this is great. And then um, a little later on, like probably like around August, I I started getting some of those same parents returning and saying, we really love supporting your business. Uh, we can only buy with so many hair bows. Or what if you made something for boys? Because I'm tired of like trucks and dinosaurs. And there was this like want to like dress kids in like vintage classic. I've actually seen it, but I remember Tumblr accounts that like <laughs> yeah. that was all I did was like dress kids to look like really cool. Little, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like little yeah. guys, right? Yeah. Um, and so... I went into research and development mode. I kind of started buying bow ties that I liked and kind of analyzing what I liked about the bow ties, what I didn't like, what I would do differently. And the first prototypes were actually on the necks of children going to school. So what made you switch, you know, to just do for the boys? Was that a, a better market for you? So then it comes down to like following and listening to your customers. I listened to my customers when they asked for something for boys. And then some of the fathers started asking for like matching sets, like bow ties to match the signs. And then like, we just realized that through more research, more understanding of the market, that the menswear market was geared up to be a really high growth market at the time. It was a beginning of a time where men wanted to like, kind of like individualize their style, probably the effects of like Instagram. So we kind of came on the piggybacks of those and just ran with it. Honestly, you sound like a marketer and you sound <laughs> like you've been through your MBA and you've gotten all this training. I had zero business training, zero business knowledge. I just had a product. And when I first started, I remember a friend of mine saying, you should pitch, get into this startup accelerator and incubator space. And I was like, no, I, I make bow ties. And she's like, no, I think some of the things that you're doing with reclaimed materials, I think it would be really appealing. And when I got there, I was super duper intimidated. It was like MBA students and like app developers and this huge room full of people and there was me with my little bow ties and one of the mentors has said the difference between you and everyone else is the fact that you actually have a product like these people are building products and you have sales like you're walking in here with sales so I did get a lot of that knowledge during my time at the accelerator and oh, incubator okay. space so did they support you did you get chosen and yeah like, oh, yeah okay. so I did get chosen that came with office space and also seed funding that's amazing and and so was that sort of the moment that you then decided to kind of not look for another job and not think about another career you were really gonna dedicate your time and energy 100% to Knott's Land it was the point that I decided to not look for another career, right. 
but I did have to work. We had just gotten the Ace Hotel and I worked as a host there for two years. And I was like going to work and going home and working on Nosland. I was like laser focused, like, okay, I'm working and I'm working on my business and there's no time for anything else. (laughs) And so one thing I noticed when reading about your company was that when people write articles or features about Knotsland, they really write about you and your story. So many entrepreneurs want to tie their story to their products, but I don't think it's as easy as it seems. Um, So I'm curious, how have you been successful tying your personal experience to your brand? That's a really, really good question. Um, For me, I knew when I was, you know, starting to take the business seriously that I wanted to develop something that was ethical, very intentional, very inclusive of other people. I think our brand has been so successful in our relationship building and our transparency, like our commitment to the environment and us being really, really transparent and really open about like our whole story. Like we share everything along the way, our highs and our low and I'll see people out in the world and be like, oh my gosh, you're just so inspiring. And because like, I make sure that I'm sharing these things. If someone else is out there who wants to do it, I want people to know you can do this too. I'm always like trying to inspire other people, women, people of color, especially to like, just go for some of those things that feel unattainable. Zanisha, how much of your customer base is local versus people finding you online from places outside of Pittsburgh? So in this last year, 2018, was when we first started seeing like more growth outside of Pittsburgh. Originally, it was like mostly all of Pittsburgh for those first two years, but that's because we hustled so much in this market. Like we, this is where we learned our customer and like we learned our value and we learned like where we are in the space. So I would say we spent that first two years just like at markets and, you know, at shows and in people's face, like direct to customer. And so every time we do something that is exposed to other people who aren't from in here, I feel like they just take it home and they talk about it and they, they wear it <laughs> and they wear it and they get excited about Nosland. So we've seen so much growth in 2018 outside of Pittsburgh. And, you know, I, I think one of my favorite things about your business is that you are using what we call upcycled fabrics. Mm-hmm. So fabrics that would otherwise be discarded, you are repurposing into something and selling that. Um, So what made you decide to go that route? How did you get inspired to do that? When I made the hair bows, the first source of fabric was this bag of goods that I did not want to give to the Goodwill. I usually give so much to the Goodwill and the VA, but like these specific items, I just could not get rid of. And I knew I wasn't going to like wear them so that I kind of like seam ripped everything, ironed it out and got it prepared to make hair bows. So it was like yards of fabric. It at my fingertips oh, wow. <laughs> and like you know and what I fabric mean. Fabric you love <laughs> and fabric that I actually love. Yeah. And then um, in the startup accelerator, my mentor said you need to find a consistent fabric source so that you can grow, so that you can scale. And I was like, okay. So I go on Google and I type in like fabric Pittsburgh, very typical basic search. And the first number that came up was an upholstery store. She answered the phone and she was like, come get this stuff right now. Before I even could get my, get the spiel that I had created, she was like, come here right now. I have a bag. I'm looking at it and it's about to go in the trash. And if you want it, just come get it. So me and my brother ran down there and went to go get it. And then we had these beautiful fabrics at our fingertips. And I was like, okay, if we got this from here, what other partners do we partner with that 
are getting rid of or discarding fabrics. You're a small batch designer and you make dresses and you may have like extra remnants left over. We can collaborate on a collection where like then we'll split the money on these bow ties because it helps you get more use out of the fabric as opposed to throwing it away. We've collaborated with artists in which they have hand painted their work <laughs> on to bow ties. And so we've just like really tapped into these ways of reusing fabric that just so it makes the possibilities endless. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> And I would guess though that on the flip side also means that access to materials is kind of controlled by others and what you get. So you have a little less flexibility than maybe if you could just go out to a store and buy whatever you want. So do you find that being sustainable is a little bit limiting or challenging in ways? It's very challenging. It's very challenging. We've been rapidly growing in the wedding market and that's a market where I see the most challenge when it comes to sustainable materials because sometimes like nailing down those exact colors to you know what they want versus like what we have and the quantities if you want a wedding of 20 people which we do have a wedding in Brooklyn of <laughs> 20 wow. yeah 20 people the grooms and the whole wedding party is getting outfitted in bow ties you have a more limited selection of fabric. I mean, we can call up our sourcing partners, we can work with designers, we can see what's out there. We can work with your tailor or your seamstress who's altering the dresses, but it's a lot more work. But that's where we're different. We're like, I'm less concerned about scale really fast than I am like being really ethical and educating our customers and having like relationships with people who understand like what we do and why we do it. You're in fashion where social media plays a huge role in the industry. So I'm curious, you know, what strategies have you worked to grow your following and awareness? And I imagine with partners too, you know, it's, it's, you're trying to incorporate and attract everyone, right? On, on those networks. So how do you manage it and what's, what's worked for you? Yeah. Um, our sourcing partners haven't really come. We got one sourcing partner from social media. Um, I think that strategy is usually like behind the scenes. Cool so call. Pick up the phone. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So primarily we use social media to appeal to our customers and also our, our loyal customers, people who have purchased things and like just love following us to like new customers and markets. Um, that's been working really, really well because it's visual. We don't have like a huge customer base, but we have a really loyal, like almost like it's like a tribe of people who just love bow ties. And a lot of our um, behind the scenes, like the making of the collections is done through stories and Instagram stories and people really interact with our stories so much. And it's so interactive and it's so fun because it allows like our customers to have a hand in like the designing process too. I love that. And you know, you're a self-taught seamstress and you provide training here in your studio to women in the community to learn how to sew, which I just think is so amazing. Um, so why do you think that skill specifically is important to pass on to your community? Well, it kind of goes back to the beginning. I wanted a sewing machine so that I could repair and fix things. And like, you know, even in sustainable fashion, I feel like the conversation for a very long time was, oh, buy this really high-end cotton and bamboo sweater. And it's like, you're supporting ethical fashion, but it doesn't make it inclusive. I feel like it kind of almost makes it exclusive in a way. I like to explain sustainable fashion as it's like for everyone, like you, it's the little things, like fixing your jeans and like, reworking a sweater or like making a handbag out of an sh old shirt. The things that you do in your everyday life that can be a lot more impactful. When you hire seamstresses, you say on your website that they also get a flexible work-life balance. 
you easily could hire seamstresses and have them work here in your studio nine to five. So why is flexibility important to your company and the community? Well, I think flexibility is the future. Anything that doesn't have to be done on location, I think should be able to be done from home. Like I really strongly believe in the idea of creating something that I wish existed because like if I was looking for work, I would have loved to work for Nosland and, and create things from home. And then once you're at your machine and you start sewing, you will work on other projects because you're in that zone, you know? So I, I'm gonna bash out my Nosland work, but then I'm gonna work on a project for myself. And that we get that a lot from Seamstress. So it's like personal development. And yeah. you're, you're helping to develop the community so that Absolutely. they not only can make money, but they can also gain skills so that they can better improve their own lives. Yeah, for a lot of the women who work in and around Knotsland are entrepreneurs. Even our lead seamstress is like, she has like a side business making dresses and reworking dresses. So like, that's like the thing that I really, really love is like being able to empower people to still have lives outside of their work. You're a woman focused on menswear, which I think is definitely a unique position to be in. Do you feel you or your products are undervalued by others in the industry because of who you are? It's not hard to look and see like most tailors are guys, most menswear store owners are guys, most of the people who are driving menswear are men. But it, it baffles me that also most of the people that are driving women's wear are men. It makes me really happy to be in menswear as a woman and not just in menswear because like we have a lot of women wear our bow ties. We have a lot of like non-conforming identities wear our bow ties. So it's nice to kind of like intersect that world. So I think it's like a powerful place to be, being a woman in menswear because you have the ability to like kind of be a minority in many different ways, but also step in and kind of like change some of the landscape of how people view menswear. And you know, I read in a Forbes article recently that the gap is widening between the average revenue for businesses owned by women of color and mm -hmm. those owned by non-minority women, which was, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but I was surprised that it was getting bigger, that gap. Um, so what unique challenges do you see exist for women of color that non-minority women may not experience in owning a company? Those challenges are so much greater than like being a woman in menswear. Like it's like capital is the number one thing that it just feels like women of color do not have that access to. Like we don't have access to capital networks, like in which we could like call up someone, an uncle or a dad's friend who has a bank or, you know what I mean? We just don't have those like streamlined access points. At the end of the day, you can't grow a business without having some sort of like infusion of capital. Like we start businesses way behind you know, we're starting um, to live. In the beginning of my story, I said, I started this company because I wanted to make money over the summer and I wanted to sustain and, you know, supplement what I had. That's not generally the case with a lot of my peers, specifically in the craft community. The craft community, I hate to admit it, is like a lot of like people of like, okay, my father gave me money or I live in a house that someone gave me or my husband is a doctor and I get to tinker and now I could build this like amazing business because I've had time and space to do so, you know? Part of what I do outside of Nosland is I consult and I um, help to work with makers of color specifically 
on like navigating some of these challenges. Like I'm still working on it and I'm still growing, but like kind of helping them get to at least to the point where I've gotten to because it's like crazy. I think for people who you know, hear that and maybe sit back and say, wow, like I didn't realize that. You know, if you could talk to what it feels like, mm-hmm. you know, to look around at a craft market mm-hmm. and realize that, you know, you're the only person of color oh, yeah. who's there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, how do you, how does that make you feel in the moment? Um, and, you know, are you, do you feel like you're empowered or do you, does it actually bring you down that you feel like, you know, you can't succeed because you look at, look at the chances? It's really, really hard. It's really hard. And a lot of times I'm the one of the only people of color. And even like when it comes down to like booth design and all these things, like I just don't have those resources. The fact that even if I'm not in a show and I'm walking a show and I don't see any people of color and I realize that like this show may have cost $5,000 to do. And a lot of times it's more about like money and it's not that people of color don't make things or don't create things because we're very creative and we exist. We just haven't been supported in ways in which like other non-minority communities. Right, right. And, you know, I find that there are so many pressures that come with being an entrepreneur. You know, there's financial pressures to managing employees. You know, mm-hmm. it's all those things that I feel like, you know, a small business owner listening to this would be like, yes, you know, we get that. You know, but also you have this community in Homewood and they're all looking at you and maybe they're going to the market and they're seeing you there and you're an inspiration and a role model. Does that add additional pressures on your business? Do you feel like you have something to prove to your community? I do, and this is a changing community. And I grew up in this community, very invested in like the growth and the grassroots of the community. And I feel as though I hit a point where I was like, you know, I'm not one of the people with the money, so there's nothing I can do to like change the things that happen in and around the community. But what I can do is I can like build a successful business that benefit and inspire other people of color to get in on the early end of the changes of the community. So I do feel that pressure of like Knotsling kind of has to succeed and we have to continue to be that example of like, it's not easy, it's a lot of work, but you can do it and keep grinding. And, you know, you've now been recognized locally by people in your community, nationally, by groups like Google. And I look at you and hear your story today, and I just see an incredibly inspiring woman. Do you see yourself that way? (laughs) I do. I do. I do. Because, like, again, I'm creating something almost like inventing a space certainly not inventing bow ties or i'm not inventing upcycling but i am inventing like this little ecosystem and i feel like that's powerful the more that i do these things i can kind of like encourage other people to be social entrepreneurs and consider like not just like profit and financial gain but also like impact and making sure that the community is okay i was very inspired by um the green collar economy by van jones and it it is a story that really details how some of our toughest problems environmental issues as well as poverty can be combined and really create like a better world but like it's a lot of work (laughs) you know what i mean and it takes time and it takes intentionality beyond just like saying oh i want to do this but like actually getting in in the trenches and doing it. Why well, nowadays I it seems every product has a story, but your story is 
an important one to tell, and I'm really grateful that you <laughs> sat with me and I could help share that. Um, you know, I just feel like it's amazing how resourceful and courageous you know you are, and your community is so lucky to have you as a role model. So thank, <laughs> thank you. you so much for meeting with me today. Thank you. I'm just so fortunate. I feel honored that you while you had a small amount of time in Pittsburgh, <laughs> you stopped by Knotsland yeah. to talk to me. Like, uh, that's major. I'm also going to stop by and pick out one of the, yes. <laughs> the bows for my husband <laughs> so that he starts wearing them more because I think he looks adorable in bow ties and I feel like these are just especially special. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women-Owned, Women-Operated Podcast. Learn more about Nisha and her business at Knotsland.com. A special thank you to Nisha Blackwell for sharing her story with us, John Lundman for our awesome Season 2 music, my incredible mother who started her own business and inspired me to start mine, and everyone who joins us in supporting women-owned businesses and their communities. Subscribe to our podcast to hear more stories like this one, and remember, when women support women, incredible things happen.